because they're dealing with life or death scenarios. People are dying over in the other room or in that scenario, and they are looking for your response as quickly as possible. And of course, they can ask more details, but if you give them a very succinct approach in terms of what your findings were, then boom, they can get the best care. You're absolutely right. We did an episode with Dr. Brandon Marchetti, who was actually a DPT who became an emergency physician. And he said, when you come talk to me, you need to know that I am thinking about 500 things. I'm juggling flaming swords and my attention span is low. If you tell me this is the patient, this is what I think, and then the action you want me to take, I am already halfway done taking that action before you finish talking. If you tell me that patient needs an MRI, I'm signing the order while you're telling me why. So be, be very succinct and careful. Welcome to In the ED Now, a podcast that makes you an excellent emergency department physical therapist. I'm your host, Dr. Rebecca Griffith, the EDDPT. On today's episode, we talked to Dr. John Hike, co-author of Differential Diagnosis for Physical Therapists, and he's going to talk to us about just that. We're going to talk about differential diagnosis with a systematic approach, how best to make referrals and ensure your patients are getting the care you need, and the concept of owning your patient's care, owning your responsibility for that patient 100%, even if you're in the emergency department. You won't want to miss this. It's going to improve your practice. You're in the ED now. Thanks for listening. All right. Hello. Welcome back. We're in the evening now. John, welcome to the show. How are you? Very good. Very good. Thanks for inviting me. I'm so happy to have you here. Can you tell the listeners a little bit about yourself before I start peppering you with questions? Sure. Sure. I'll, I'll, I'll try and be brief. Um, I'm a, a full-time faculty. I just got professor and tenured at Northern Arizona University in Flagstaff, Arizona. I've been, been involved in the primary care movement practice for 20 years now, which is kind of strange to say um, out loud. Uh, and the associate editor for a differential diagnosis screening for referral uh, textbook. So that's exactly why you're here. One of the biggest things we do in the emergency department is differential diagnosis. So some people would say that like physical therapists should not be doing differential diagnosis. I would tell you it's one of the number one things that I need to have as part of my skill set in the emergency department. So what would you say to those people who think that's outside our scope? I don't understand that thinking in terms of differential diagnosis, what we do. And you know that's what we're, you know, when you get an evaluate and treat type of script, I think that's super important to consider all options. And I think there's lots of different things that help you in being systematic to consider those different options. And so I think we'll chat about a few of those things today. Absolutely. So if somebody's listening and they're like, okay, I'm in the emergency department, maybe I've only done protocol-based PT in the past, post-surgical, maybe I've only done acute care where you you knew everything about the patient. How do I get started with my differential diagnosis? If a patient comes in with, with a vague complaint of, say, low back pain, like where do I even begin? Yeah, I think one of the things that we have to think about it are, you know, when we think about someone with low back pain, and we also have to think about the experience of the therapist, which you just mentioned. Mm-hmm. Your, your background in terms of acute care or an outpatient ortho person kind of takes you down a di- different pathway than a, a different clinical setting in terms of your experience. So in terms of thinking of that, I, I think there's some things that all of us need to specifically know. And I think checklists are one way to potentially help us with that. We know that in terms of pilots and nursing and or uh, even in the emergency department, 
that physicians and healthcare providers and nurse practitioners and physician assistants are following a kind of checklist approach to make sure they're not missing something. Low back pain is a perfect example of one that we would need to look for in terms of a checklist. Do we have a complete medical history from this person that we are taking? So I, I think that's super important that we nail the medical history and capitalize on that uh, specifically. In the, in the emergency department, we have a lot of information available about that patient that we want to look at, but then we are gonna confirm that with the patient. So first step, receiving a very, very thorough patient history. And I think you, you hit the nail on the head because the chart that I might get, there might be one note and it might have one line that says, patient complaints of low back pain. Right, right, exactly. And maybe a set of vitals. Yes, and the vitals can be telling, I think, one of the things uh, in terms of looking at the vitals is are we seeing any possibility of atherosclerosis that might lead to asking questions about smoking? If we have smoking and we have hypertension and we have a male that's over 50 years of age, uh, more likely to be 70, but over the age of 50 uh, is kind of the, the, the beginnings of looking at is that potential for abdominal aortic aneurysm that's causing their low back pain? Things like that in terms of just verifying those things in the medical history and then that sets you up for the exam. And so if you have those things, knowing the prevalence of different conditions, knowing the patient that's mm. sitting in front of you helps you a whole lot in determining, do I even need to look at this or can I keep going in terms of low back pain? So I think that, that that's very helpful. I think too, we just assume maybe somebody else checked, especially in the ED. Like if this person's already seen a physician, we're like, oh no, they're good. And so one thing I say to students is please don't assume the emergency has passed just because you're seeing the patient. Because the other thing is, you, like you said, you have to know your patient as well. So I might have people who have no health insurance. They might not have seen a physician in 20 years. years. Right. So, so they don't know what their blood pressure is normally. They don't, they might not be taking any medications. They might should be taking some, or they might not know what those medications are. That's another issue. So when we're talking about history vitals, I think those are things we need to not miss as well. So how do you even like, I think for students, when they're coming into this environment, they're like, I don't even know where to begin. And you're absolutely right. Physicians, nurse practitioners, PAs in the emergency department follow algorithms. They're very algorithm-based. If the patient complains of this, we begin here, and then we go this way, this way, this way, this way. But that doesn't really exist for PTs, or does it? It does. It doesn't unless we start looking at what other professions are doing. And so there are some things. I mean, our clinical practice guidelines are somewhat of a guide, um, a treatment-based classification for low back pain specific to this uh, condition is one thing that we would potentially capitalize on to sort of pattern recognition in terms of looking at that. But I think you're right in terms of looking at that patient and, and then seeing, are their vitals normal? Yes, no. Um, that might be one part of the algorithm. Step then, one. <laughs> we go down that road, right? But again, we don't know, is that normal for yeah. them? Yeah. And so I think, but if their pulse is abnormal, if their blood pressure is abnormal, that starts us in terms of question. If it is normal, then you know, the potential winds up being less likely if they're not male, if they're not over 50, you know, 70 years of age. And again, the other part of that is just low back pain that you brought up. Are we likely to see low back pain in a 50 year or 70 year old? And we would expect there to be some mechanism of injury. So if there isn't a mechanism of injury, again, our history winds up helping us a whole lot in determining, okay, this person has no mechanism of injury and you know they fit this criteria, now we have to look further. 
So I think that's one way of just, you know, making sure our, our history is spot on, not just relying on someone else's, no matter who that person is. They might be, you know, very, very skilled at what they do, but, you know, we need to make sure that we're capitalizing on our examination, our history and being very systematic. I think we ask different questions too, don't you think? Like, even if a physician might tell me, hey, like, they don't have a mechanism of injury. And then I talk to the patient and they do. You just had to dig a little deeper. Like maybe that mechanism of injury wasn't yesterday. Maybe it was three days ago and they didn't think anything of it. Or maybe they had a car accident about a week ago and in retrospect, things aren't quite right. Or for six months, every time I pick up my daughter, if I turn this way and then today I couldn't get out of bed. Like, so I feel like those are useful things. Or I'll get, this patient had a mechanical fall and then I talk to the patient and they're like, no, when I stood up from the toilet, I blacked out. And you're like, okay, those are very different things. Mechanical right. fall in the bathroom. So how do you recommend like receiving that history from patients? And I like to say receiving a history, not taking it. Because I feel like if I'm taking it, I'm trying to get specific things from them. But if I'm receiving it, I'm trying to encourage them to give me information that's important. So that, how do you start? That's a nice way to put it. I, I think... You know, one of the things is uh, I'm doing this motivational interviewing class mm -hmm. right now that's uh, all semester long. It's super cool. Um, one of the thoughts is ORS, O-A-R-S. Um, you ask open-ended questions is the O. Um, and then from there, the A is the, uh, you affirm with the patient. So I heard you say this or that. And then your R is your reflection. You're reflecting on that to make sure that you're capitalizing on what the patient's actually saying and confirming. And then your S is your summary. So your summary statement in terms of motivational interviewing. So ORS is a nice kind of quick way to sort of capitalize on that, make sure you and the patient are saying the same thing in terms of what they're saying. Another one that you brought up in terms of no mechanism injury that the physician is noting, but you as a therapist, they just went on vacation to Florida. They were laid on the beach for you know a week or whatever. And now all of a sudden they went to do some activity and boom, now their back hurts. So you're right. There is potentially there a possibility for a mechanism of injury to show itself that as us as physical therapists, I think are best suited uh, as musculoskeletal experts to capitalize on. So I think there's at least one physical therapist who's listening and they're like, I don't have time for this, especially <laughs> in the emergency department. Like, look, man, I got to get people in and out of here. How am I supposed to do this in a reasonable amount of time. You want me to screen every single person for an aortic aneurysm. You think I have time to take their, their medical history from when they were six years old. Like I don't have time for that. Yeah. How do I do this quickly? Yeah. I think in terms of being efficient, we can be efficient by you know, looking at prevalence. If they're not 50 to 70 in male and uh, have abnormal vitals, then I'm probably not going to look specifically at a triple A. So I think, the idea of prevalence fits in nicely. No mechanism injury. Now I need to look at the systems and, you know, a true no mechanism injury, as you pointed out. So I think in terms of shortcuts, if you will, to be more efficient, it is very helpful to kind of gather that information and go from there. One way to potentially do that is when we, when we think about the type one and the type two thinking. And so, to make the analogy for type one, this is very, you know, I used to work nights 11 to seven in the morning uh, in a grocery store. And, and many times I'd drive home and I'd fall asleep on the drive home. Not um, good. Wouldn't even remember the drive home. No. Right? I know, terrible. That's type one thinking. So when we're driving, we don't really think about driving. 
like that incident where I was falling asleep, I don't remember how I got home in some cases, not because there was alcohol involved, but just because of tired and everything else. And that's actually how a lot of people go through their examination in terms of using type one thinking, they are automatically start thinking pattern, pattern recognition. Oh, I need to mobilize or manipulate this person without even considering the other systems. So that's really type one thinking. Type two thinking is more methodical, considering other options in terms of whether systems that might be contributing to their low back pain. And if you will, sort of ruling them out. You can very quickly do that if you do more of a systematic type of approach in your evaluation. So you pair your medical history taking very well. It winds up being yours specifically. And then you take a very systematic approach in terms of examination. Things like Vindicate is one way to potentially uh, look at um, as a, as a some, somewhat of a checklist type of approach. I don't have Vindicate specifically memorized, but you know, one of the ways of, of looking at it is, is this, this um, and this is used by physicians as well, and actually is in the physician literature to take this approach. Is it vascular? Is it infection? Is it cancer? Is it related to any medications that the individual is taking? Iatrogenic is our eye. Congenital or inherited type of presentation. Autoimmune, is there trauma involved? Is there endocrine? So if we've gathered a complete approach in terms of thinking of the history, we can rule out some of those almost immediately, right? Our observation tells us a lot about the potential for congenital type of thing. Or do they have a lot of mobility in their joints? Do we see any discoloration across their low back? Cerratic arthritis, for example, for an individual winds up being, do they have psoriasis? And then do they have, does that contributing to their low back pain? So I think that just by observation and do a systematic evaluation using type one, but really trying to hone in on the type two to consider other systems helps us a whole lot in trying to figure that out. Well, okay. I mean, that's a lot of like really good stuff. So we need so. to, we need to not be on autopilot is what right. I hear. Like, right. When we're like, driving home, right. That's autopilot. Not thinking yeah. about it. Need Just to think because about somebody lifted a box in this position doesn't mean they herniated a disc, right? Like we've got to take a, a longer look. And I actually have a case study of a patient who, um, had a mechanism of injury. She picked up her granddaughter and had low back pain a week before that. She'd been rear-ended in a motor vehicle accident. And so she had back pain and it didn't feel like a big deal. She had seen her PCP. Nobody was particularly concerned about it. She was starting to have more and more decrease in function. She came to the emergency department. She had a little foot drop on one side, had had a history of like ephemeral neuritis in the past. This person was also a healthcare provider. So she was not like that worried about it, but, um, and everything looked good. Like x-rays were fine. She had some, some basic labs that looked okay. Her vitals were fine when she came into the ED. And while I was working with her, like fit a pattern. Like she responded very well to traction. She was able to, we were able to reduce her pain inside lying with some gapping strategies, like really like made a, made a difference. I was able to localize it sort of to this like L4, L5 area. Then when I had her ambulating and I actually helped her to the bathroom, her work of breathing increased substantially. She was confused. 
she was like having trouble remembering how to do her hygiene tasks. And like the foot drop got progressively worse as we were walking back to the room, checked Uh vitals again. She had desat it to like 75% with ambulation. She was tachycardic. Her blood pressure was low. Like it was all a little sketchy. Yeah. And I said to her, Hey, like, why are you here in the emergency department? Like, you know, we don't do a lot for low back pain, like as a healthcare provider. And I'll just never forget. She just looks at me and she goes, I've just been decompensating for a while. I was like, that's not something you want to have a healthcare provider say to you. And then her daughter, who was a nurse, was with her. And I said, why are you here? She's like, this is not my mom. Something's wrong. Different person. Yeah. Yeah. And so, you know, and and I love telling the story. And the patient is actually share my story with everybody because a PT could miss this anywhere, really. If you just, if you stopped that session after the, before the ambulation, And you were just like, oh, great, this worked great for you. Let's get you to outpatient PT. And I walked out and they had shift changed while I was in there. And it was a brand new attending I'd never met before. And I said, hey, like, I'm Rebecca. I'm the physical therapist. It's nice to meet you. Welcome to the hospital. There's something really wrong with your patient. I can't explain what it is. These are my findings. And luckily, he said, okay, I'm going to do more. And she ended up getting uh, more lab work and an MRI. And she had a significant spinal cord abscess that went on imaging from, I think, T12 to S2, maybe. Huge. Oh, massive. And they admitted her to the hospital. And overnight, she actually became unresponsive and went for an emergent IND. And it actually went from C5 to S2 was how far it actually went. And she ended the next day, I saw her in the ICU in our surgical trauma ICU. Luckily she had a full recovery. She's doing great, but that's one of those where like, yes, it has a mechanism of injury. Everything looks okay on the surface. Mechanism. Yeah. And she also had osteomyelitis of that L4, L5 area with that I was concerned about and a, a psoas abscess. So like all of her exam findings were very musculoskeletal. Like she had some hip flexor weakness. She had, you know, all of these things lined up, but it was not from a mechanical cause. Right. Right. Yeah. And, and those are the things, I mean, those are the, you know, the red herrings, if you will, in terms of looking at them and, and those definitely do happen. Um, but I think when we look at the person that's coming in the ER and I think that, uh, uh, cross carry specifically refers to this, um, maybe this is useful for those of you in the E in the ED is the rows. And the idea of rows is to rule out the worst scenario first. Oh, I love that. That's perfect. Rule out the worst scenario first. And if you can do that and continue to do that, basically that brings you down to musculoskeletal. So I think when we think about uh, figuring out what's going on with a patient and we get complex cases like you just described, you saw almost immediately when you started to walk her. There was a definite increase in, or in terms there of was a breathing. Sy- was the first systemic one. issue. Right. So that's that's definitely a red herring. Those absolutely happen. And we are perfectly suited to nail those in terms of looking at that. And, you know, like you said, in terms of the referring physician that was the new attendee, perfect opportunity in the emergency department to say, these are my findings. And I, I love how you also articulated that because you're very succinct. And that's yeah. what you have to be in terms of in this setting, right? Because they're dealing with life or death scenarios. People are dying over in the other room or in that scenario, and they are looking for your response as quickly as possible. And of course, they can ask more details, but if you give them a very succinct approach in terms of what your findings were, then boom. 
they can get the best care. You're absolutely right. We did an episode with Dr. Brandon Morchetti, who was actually a DPT who became an emergency physician. And he said, when you come talk to me, you need to know that I am thinking about 500 things. I'm juggling flaming swords and my attention span is low. If you tell me this is the patient, this is what I think, and then the action you want me to take, I am already halfway done taking that action before you finish talking. If you tell me that patient needs an MRI, I'm signing the order while you're telling me why. So be, be very succinct and careful. So I think that brings us to our next topic about referrals. How do you know when you can't manage this patient and what do you do next? And, and I know this applies to PTs in any setting, right? As doctors and managing our patients, we need to have that knowledge of when it's outside our scope, when we need help, who that help should come from, and how do we get it for our patient. Yeah, I think the biggest thing to think about, depending on where uh, an individual works, but in the emergency department, you have all kinds of availability of different providers in terms of referral. For us, when I worked in the emergency department, um, there was a social worker that we would go to and say, this is what I would think. So if we um, assume that we want 100% care for our patient and the possibility exists for potential for referral from multiple people as needed, when needed. So, for example, I know you're very familiar with the House of Delegates um, and the idea of, of looking at nutrition and nutrition counseling. Um, that, in my view, uh, I'm probably not best suited to do that in terms of providing nutrition counseling and dietitian is, in some cases, I might refer a patient for a dietitian. It's just for that reason, in terms of the best care. That's not always going to be the case for every single patient, so don't get me wrong. But in terms of that referral and uh, whether that's do they need continuing physical therapy, do they need to see a, another healthcare provider? And in one case, for example, we had an individual that had a headache and we wound up referring them to a vascular surgeon that we knew very well. And uh, that person had an ABA, an mm. uh, arteriovenous anastomosis, uh, a week later, right on the, you know, placed at the top of the list of the sur- for surgery and had an ABA to bypass the vertebral base or artery that was occluded. I mean, some of the stuff that you, you have no idea in terms of that referral, where it's going to go, I think that's super important to try and, and follow up in some ways to be able to do that. So I think number one, you have to assume 100% care for that patient. Yes, so thank you. you that's a mindset it. shift for so many people. So I just right. say that again, you have to assume 100% responsibility and care for that patient. Right, exactly. And I think the best care, best potential for that patient is to get them to the person that they need. Mm-hmm. Um, so for physical therapy, if I'm going to refer them for a physical therapy from the ED, and I'm not doing that just to be clear, I'm not doing ED practice right now. But if I'm going to do that, what I want to do is make sure that that person is getting the th- physical therapist that's best in the area that they live. So I think that's super important because then it becomes convenient for the patient. And if I provide them with that person's name and or a phone number or, or a website, then now they're more likely to see that person. And I would give them a name specific to that clinic of where I think they need to go. I think that's super important because that's the, the human connection and they automatically think, oh, I need to go see this person. So that's very helpful um, in terms of referring to PT. If there's other professionals that are involved, uh, I think that's why working in the department is super beneficial because 
you form a network of, of different healthcare providers across the spectrum. And you know who's good and who's perhaps not as good. Or who so, will maybe connect best with that patient. Right, 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 exactly. Yeah, well okay. said, and that's super important as well. I think also in the emergency department, things that we have to be cognizant of, does that person take this patient's insurance? Can this patient afford to go? Are these hours, does this patient work three jobs? When will they see this person? Who can accommodate them? Do they have transportation? Like all of these, do they need an interpreter? All of these things are hard for patients to overcome. And do they have the health literacy to make that follow-up appointment can they see why they're going, why they need to continue going? Do they understand what's coming next? Yeah, you know, I think that's, that's a, you know, I'm thinking of a patient. As soon as you started saying that, I was thinking of a patient I saw in the emergency department that I was recognizing early signs of Parkinson's. Hmm. It just came down to Tucson from, from the Midwest, and they wind up leaving the ED um, had a hard time with doing transfers at the time, having a little bit of uh, problems in terms of, you know, the trip down and everything uh, combined. They got home and had to call the fire department to help them in terms of getting out of the car in the garage to get in the house. I mean, mm-hmm. we definitely don't want to have that scenario happen to our patients. But, you know, this this patient taught me a lot in terms of that person, I, in terms of how they were transferring at that point in time, they probably should have stayed uh, in an inpatient facility for a, sh- a short bout um, instead of going home. And so, you know, we learn from these patients in terms of those encounters of making sure that the referral basis, um, the person that we're referring to uh, gets the best care. In that case, didn't get the best care and I should have known better. And your referral in that case might have been to a subacute rehab or an acute rehab facility so that that patient got the care that they need. Exactly. And so they don't come back to the emergency department. Exactly. And cost the healthcare system, which that's, of course, one of the things that's in the back of our mind. Um, we want to provide 100% care to our patients, right? Yeah. yeah. So if I need to make a referral to somebody in the hospital, sometimes there's politics about that. Like, do I need to go through the emergency medicine doctor or because I'm an autonomous provider, like I want to call the orthopedist. What do you think is the best way to kind of communicate through that chain and manage that type of scenario where you're pretty sure this patient, like, so let me back up. If I were an outpatient provider and you came to my clinic and I said, oh, John, you know, I think you might actually have a patellar fracture. I'm going to order imaging and we're going to start there. First, I'm going to, you know, and then I'm going to like stabilize your knee, probably put you in a knee mobilizer until I know for sure that you're safe to mobilize. I'm going to send you for that image. And then when that image comes back and you have a patellar fracture, I am then going to refer you to an orthopedist. Right, right. In the emergency department, it doesn't work that way, right? There's like lots of different steps. So because of the space that we're in, we have to follow different pathways. But how do you recommend like communicating well with the medical team so that you make sure that that patient gets the care they need, regardless of those different channels? Because again, we've assumed 100% responsibility for that patient. Yeah, I think one of the things is just to be straight with the, the physician that you're, that you're uh, talking to in the emergency department. I think saying something like the best option for this patient, they have this patellar fracture, is to see such and such doctor. I've been able to care for a lot of his patients and her her patients, and uh, they do a great job. So prefacing it that way is one way to 
potentially do that. I, what's super helpful is when you form that relationship, and you know this very well, but you work in the emergency department, right? If you form that relationship with the different physicians, they trust everything that you say. Yes, 100%. It's so cool of an environment. I mean, I feel sorry for those people that don't work in this environment yeah. um, because of that reasoning, because it's it's, it's a team. And it's so I, lateral. It is. It's super cool. And collaborative. Exactly. And not so hierarchical. So I actually I totally agree with you. I feel bad for people that have difficulty kind of navigating all of those different political things. I saw somebody posted on Twitter the other day that, that they had sent a patient back to their physician with concerns of infection around an incision. And that physician had called and screamed at them, told them they were going to ruin their career. They should never be insinuating that the surgeon caused, caused an infection. And I just thought, wow, like... This is either a total communication failure between the, the providers and the patient, but that's probably not how the physical therapist sent the patient to that person. So I think lessons to be learned there about how to make those referrals to people within your community and to know who you're sending people to, I think is also important. Exactly, exactly. I think, you know, the, the other option with the, the, with the infection is, you know, maybe the patient was, was doing something bizarre, all kinds of Patients I've worked with that, you know, want to show you their scar and they want to put their hand right on the scar and say, this is a little tight right here. And, they're, they're, you know, that scission's fresh. They're putting their dirty hands and then they have no idea that that's a bad thing. So lots of different variables in terms of infection specifically. It might not be the therapist, might not be the surgeon. It could be the patient. It could be all kinds of different things that would potentially lead to that. But you're right. So many different, so many different ways to have difficulty with that. So if you don't have a good community setup of people you can refer to, how would somebody get started? Yeah, I think one of the things is potentially get your name out there. And the way to do that that I found is super helpful is is marketing. So we we did we would do marketing kind of not as marketing, but as a presentation. The presentation would be to physicians that were within the hospital or associated with the hospital. And it was super cool because I'm doing this presentation on uh, vestibular rehabilitation and how our balance center, and specifically it was about a balance center. And we were kind of throwing that out there. This, These are the different things that we offer in the balance center. And then I flipped it and went right into talking about seeing a patient in the emergency room, taking care of their BPAV, and then I have a patient that was in the audience that raised her hand, stood up and talked about, and I didn't, that patient just showed up. It was super cool. And telling like 30 physicians the care that they received. I love and, that. I know. And how I saved that patient's life, actually, because they were actually coming in and, and everyone was throwing out the idea that this person had anything to do in terms of, of the cardiac, in terms of their heart mm. at all. But when you start, like you brought up at the very beginning, in terms of that patient and no mechanism injury, this patient's uh, husband has passed away uh, like three months before. And so lots of, 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 sh of shifts in terms of what they're going to do. And sure enough, when they went to look at, at the heart and the cardiologist, the cardiologist specifically said, well, you were here and we just worked you up last November. Yes, but they had a, a huge life change, huge. which completely um, accelerated the atherosclerosis. And they put them on the table and did surgery for that person. So this is a patient that raised their hand was saying, you saved my life. And all of a sudden, after talking to those physicians in that group, boom, referrals skyrocketed. 
Because they know they can trust you, right? They know they well, can trust they you. They saw that. They heard that. They they said, this guy knows what he's talking about. And, you know, we do as physical therapists. It's just we don't get our names out there. Other professions do a really nice job of, if you will, sort of selling themselves. Um, not that I'm selling myself or selling myself, but that's kind of what you want to be able to do in terms of getting your name out there so they know about you and that they know that potentially they can send their patients to I think too, if you if you are selling yourself, and I know PTs don't like to think of ourselves as salespeople, but we are. I mean, we have to get patients to buy into what we want them to do. We need to get providers to buy into what we're providing as well. And um, I had actually got an email question from somebody who has just started working in the emergency department, and this pertains to marketing. And they said, "How do you get these providers to refer yeah. to you?" Even though you're sitting right there, it's not about proximity, right? It's about what you're offering. And so the question was, how do I keep marketing to these providers without being annoying? Yeah, I. so my my scenario there was, so you can imagine this, and, and maybe there's lots of stories, like a six foot six guy comes in on a backboard, five people carrying him in with low back pain. Back to your scenario about- Were they screaming? Cause that's gonna like- that's He wasn't that's screaming. Okay, all right. <laughs> Him and his wife were there. They're in a curtained room. It's super busy. It's a Friday night. I, that's what how my memory goes. They're getting ready to give him Dilaudid. I I get um, you know paged in terms of going to see the patient. And I worked on the patient. And it's you know, uh, long story short, the patient walks out with his wife and walks out. And there's ten physicians sit, sitting there, and they're all like looking at. And they, what did you do with that patient? And I said physical therapy it works ah. and boom after that it was super cool i mean what a perfect place to work you know oh i love that i love that i actually bet a neuro resident uh, i was like i bet you a diet coke that i See? can get this guy walking <laughs> and he was like if you can get this guy walking and we don't have to admit the patient i'll buy you too i was like there you go. challenge accepted so it got in there you know really like the other thing that I think is missed a lot is it's not necessarily can't walk, but won't walk for whatever reason. And once you can overcome that issue, like why they won't walk, whether it's pain, whether it's fear, whether it's like dizziness, whatever it is. And then that patient's right. up and going, this guy was up doing laps and I made sure we walked past that neurology resident like three times. Yeah, three times. <laughs> and I was like, I think you, you need to pay up. And he goes, Oh no, man, two sodas. That's attending money. I can't buy that. <laughs> He's like, you've got to talk to the attending. I was like, Oh, but I tell you what, that's exactly how you do it. You show your value. You get that patient who came in stuck on that backboard up and walking. You get that patient with vertigo walking out the door. You have that patient who really, they might not need like a lot of hands-on care, but they need you to hear them and reassure them and, and give them a plan. That patient comes out and they say, I feel so much better. That's how you market there are other ways to do it, right? Like I, sometimes I share journal articles with the residents. Sometimes I talk to the attendings about their pain. Oh, your shoulder's bothering you after rock climbing this weekend. Let me talk to you about things you can do. And then they can see the value that way. But the best marketing is a satisfied patient. You're right. But I think that's true because once the physicians or other healthcare providers see that you can do this well, they start asking you, oh, you know, this, my thumb, and I did this thing. And next thing you know, it's like, well, you want to take care of that person is just as well as, as all the other patients, right? So yeah. once you start doing that and they trust you, that's what it's about. 
It's about trust, right? And so if you can speed up the trust aspect, I think that's super important, especially in this environment. I absolutely agree. Thank you so much for your time today. I just want to know if you have like one liner, one mic drop moment for, for anybody listening, whether it's about referrals, differential diagnosis, or physical therapy in, in general, what do you want to leave people with? I think the biggest thing is, um, you know, that history and nailing that history so that, like you said um, very well, that patient that's in front of you, you're using the same language that they would use. Mm-hmm. And then you're doing a bit of very systematic examination in terms of looking at them in almost immediately just by scanning and, and having uh, um, some experience in the emergency department, you can start throwing out things that are within the systems in terms of observation and how the person moves, just like your patient that you shared uh, in the example with the foot drop. I think that those things are, are super important in things that we need to pay attention and be very attuned and be with that patient so that we are really feeling what it is that's going on in their life at that point in time to capitalize on. Absolutely perfect. No, absolutely perfect. We're going to take this garden bed full of weeds and we're going to pull them out until we get to the beauty that's left. And then we're going to do what we need to do to take care of it. Yep. I love it. Well, thank you so much for being with us. You're in the ED now and you've been officially discharged. (laughs) That's great. Thank you for listening. In the ED Now is a podcast hosted and produced by Rebecca Griffith, the ED DPT, as part of Rebecca Griffith Physical Therapy, LLC. Our podcast makes you an excellent emergency department physical therapist. This podcast is intended for educational use only and is not intended as clinical or medical advice. While we make every effort for accuracy, factual errors may be present. Since you've been in the ED, I'm prepared to give you your discharge instructions. Please subscribe, share, and find more at the eddpt.com. You're officially discharged.